Uh, last time we were in the place of seeing Joseph go to his father because word came to Joseph that Jacob was on his deathbed or very ill. And so Jacob goes to, uh, I'm sorry, Joseph goes to Jacob. Also, of course, we know his name is Israel and takes his sons Ephraim and Manasseh. And Jacob uh, works, gets up his strength and visits with Joseph. Uh, A part of that, he elevates Ephraim and Manasseh to be equal with the other brothers of Joseph, meaning that Joseph's two sons that were born before uh, Jacob came to um, Egypt would be sharing equally with the other brothers. And we'll see more of that today as we, well, maybe not today, but before we're done with looking at chapter 49. And so um, they, that effectively gives Joseph a double portion because each of his sons will get a portion of the inheritance, which, what's the primary asset of their inheritance? Hmm? Yeah, the, prom- the promise, which includes the promised land. Uh, thing that this whole idea of a promise begins to move toward the return to Canaan and the division of the land as they take that land to be their own. Any other children that are born to Joseph would not share in that same way would be, be included under Ephraim and Manasseh. Uh, Jacob then notices there's somebody with Joseph and he says, who's here? He's effectively blind. Well, it happens to be Ephraim and Manasseh. And Jacob blesses Joseph and his two sons. He's already got a promise from Joseph that he will take him back to Canaan to be buried with the rest of the family. But Joseph puts Manasseh on Jacob's right because Manasseh was the oldest. And as the blessings given with the laying on of the hands on the head, um, the one on the right is the higher level blessing. Um, and Jacob makes it clear, no, I'm, I'm intentionally crossing my arms as I make this blessing because the younger Ephraim will be greater. And Manasseh will also be uh, a large tribe, a nation, but Ephraim will be the greatest. And he gives some property to Joseph from the Amorite that he said he had taken with sword and bow. And we don't know really what that is. And then he says, I'm about to die. God will be with you and will bring you back to the land of your father. So once again, Jacob makes it clear that he is certain that uh, Joseph will be go- Joseph's offspring will be going back to the land of Canaan, back to the land of the fathers. And throughout this passage, we've seen elements of it where Jacob is speaking prophetically. He's declaring what God is going to do and with accuracy. And so uh, that takes us to chapter 49. Uh, You know as well as I that the chapter divisions are not a part of the original writing, but it's often easy to divide it up that way. But we should realize that the clock continues to tick as... We see Joseph is there with Jacob, and then we move into 49, 
and it's continuing right behind it. To begin with, I'd like to just read the first four verses of Genesis 49. Before we get into that, let me just say this. Um, we are not going to cover chapter 49 today, not even close. I don't know if this is two sessions or three sessions or what it's going to be. If, frankly, it's very necessary for us to look forward to see how these words of Jacob, at least in, in some fashion, are played out in the lives of his sons, the tribes to be the 12 tribes. And so as we look at that, that's going to take a little bit of time. And so we'll look at it son by son. We're going to start with Reuben, of course. He's the first, well, I say of course. We'll talk about that too. But anyway, let's read Genesis 49, 1 through 4. And Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence, because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it, he went up to my couch. Okay. So it begins with Jacob summoning the sons together. And he said, assemble, be here, gather, and I will tell you what will befall you in the days to come. Now here's Jacob. He's on his deathbed. And if you think about what you might imagine, I mean, I haven't been around that much where there's been this kind of communication. I've been with one of my ancestors, my grandfather on my dad's side, as he passed away, but he was, he had been comatose for days. I mean, this kind of an event I have never witnessed. I've never been a part of it, but there are times when people get a chance to express things when they know they're on their deathbed. And in those moments, you know, what would you want to say to your children, grandchildren, whomever might be there? And I would say, typically, you're going to want to be an encourager. You're going to want to look at bright memories. You're going to want to move things in a way that you think will be positive for them. You might give them some admonitions. You, you might call them to Christ, your offspring that are not already uh, saved, aren't already in the kingdom. Uh, but it's interesting what Jacob says he's going to do. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen to you. And so Jacob stays in a prophetic tone here as he talks to his sons from his deathbed. And so in verse 1 he says, assemble, listen to what I'm going to tell you. In verse 2 he says, again, gather and hear, O sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel your father, using both of his names. And we know certainly that as time moves forward, we're going to see that this word Israel, this name for Jacob Israel, is going to become the national identifier in most cases. And so, this is scary. Okay, I feel better now. I looked at my notes and I saw things from last week. But it was just my review. So, I feel a little better now. I'm like... Did I mix these together and now I have to try to figure out what it all has says from note without notes? But so, Dave, so Jacob continues in this prophetic tone 
And um, then the order here is interesting. He starts with um, Reuben, which we would expect. There's the oldest and so on. But as we, as we look at the order here, it's not by an order you might expect. Um, we have sons born through Leah, mostly to begin with. We get all of them out of the way, but then we go to Belhoff for one, then we go to Rachel or Bill. I don't remember it all, and I don't have it the listing for you here, but I'm just telling you, this is not alphabetical order. Alphabetical. This is not birth order. It isn't in order only by parentage, by mothers, because we split up Bilhaz, but we start with Reuben, the firstborn. Of course, he is from um, Leah. And he starts there in verse 3. He says, you're my firstborn, my might, and the beginning of my strength. What do you think he means by that? Whose might did he say? It's my might, at the beginning of my strength. And I, I think it's very typical, looking at a firstborn child, you, you're going to hang a lot of hopes on that firstborn. And here's this firstborn, he's a son, and you begin to see... Uh, particularly when you start thinking about Jacob being the heir of Isaac, being the heir of Abraham, and we've got the promises, and we've got all these things, you know, the kinds of thoughts you would have about that firstborn are, here, here is a young man, raise him up to be strong and be proud of him, and there's a lot hanging on that firstborn. Um, at this point in time, does Jacob know when Reuben is born that there will be more children. Well, you can anticipate it, but you can't know for sure. After all, your descendancy is from an only child, right? If you back up to Isaac. Um, and so um, he's looking at that, and this would have been the role that Reuben should have played. A strong firstborn the oldest is often the leader amongst the children, at least for a period of time. And he said, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. You're the first. That's what that preeminent means. It, it could come out a number of different ways, but preeminent typically means the beginning, the first, the chief, the choice part. And so it shows rank, order. And so you're the firstborn. You're the beginning of it all. That's what you should have begun. But because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. What was the sin of Reuben? Um, I skipped a verse here, but that's okay. If we, I didn't write it down. That's right. He, he, he laid with Rachel's handmaiden, whom also Jacob had father children with, right? Remember that? So in that sense, she was a wife of Jacob, even called them wives in some settings, but in others they kind of get divided off. And so um, that's how he did the 
the, the defilement. Uh, prior to that, in verse 4, he said, and I skipped this part of the verse, uncontrolled is water. You shall not have preeminence. Uncontrolled of water, that uncontrolled word, what, what did? Unstable. Unstable. Um, if you went down to the most common use of the word, it would say boiling like water that, when it boils. It's that image is just things are moving around. You're just, you're all over the map. And because of this uncontrolled nature, because you just boil over and do things, uh, he was involved in Joseph's captivity. Uh, he was involved in the sale of Joseph. He was involved in defiling his father's bed with his, with Jacob's wife and mother of other children. And so all of that comes together. And Jacob said, you're not going to be preeminent. You've lost it because of this. Um, in First Chronicles, looking ahead, um, the, there, there are some uh, genealogies that get used in the first eight chapters and some discussion of the tribes. When we get to Chronicles, we're well past the era we're talking about here, obviously. The Jews, the descendants of Abraham, descendants of Jacob have been brought out of Egypt and they have crossed in the process of crossing and have crossed the desert area they're looking forward to their taking in part of Chronicles they're looking forward to taking possession of the promised land and I want to pick out what is said in that listing of children in first Chronicles chapter 5 let's look at verses 1 and 2 first Chronicles 5 1 and 2 Sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, for he was the firstborn, but because he declined his father's couch, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that he could not be enrolled as the oldest son. <coughs> Though Judah became strong among his brothers, and a chief came from him, yet the birthright belonged to Joseph. Okay, so that, and we'll talk more about those verses, probably not today, but when we get down to talking about Joseph. But, so what happened to Reuben's birthright? It was given to the sons of Joseph. It was given to the sons of Joseph, and yet who became the leader of the pack? Judah. Judah. So there's two roles here that Reuben, you might expect, could and would have. He would be the firstborn, so he would be the leader of the clan upon Jacob's passing. He would be the new patriarch. And he would get a birthright. What was the most typical part of the physical inheritance that went with the birthright? Do you know what was Jewish custom? Half. Wasn't it half? Half everything. It was a double portion. If you have five kids, divide up six piles, and the oldest gets the first two. And so he should have received a double portion. But that, we know, went to Joseph because of bringing up his two sons as equal. And as far as his leadership role as firstborn, that went to Judah. And so right in Chronicles, they're just keeping track of just what Jacob is saying here. Reuben, 
you lost it. And you lost it through your own sin. He's still one of the twelve. Still goes into the promised land. They're still going to get a portion. By the way, the two handouts that I gave you, I'm not sure how much we'll look at them today. It might be a little more tomorrow. But there are some of these predictions along the way that talk about land and some things, and I want to be able to, to easily talk about that. So I found those were the best, easiest two illustrations I could bring to you from the Internet. And I gave you the, the uh, URLs if you want to go look. I am not necessarily endorsing everything either one of those websites say, okay? But their illustrations were good, and what I read was pretty decent, so maybe they're fine. I don't know, but I didn't, I didn't look at them for that kind of, a, of an answer. So if you go out there and you read something strange, don't say I endorsed it, because all I did was endorse their photos or their drawings at the moment. They may be fine. I'm not saying they're not. I just don't know. So as we look at Reuben, Jacob, rather than, you know, you would hope your father's deathbed, you would hear some good things, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you want to part with some good things? But Reuben, it's made clear to him, not only do I know who you are, but not only you're not preeminent in the family now, but this is also then going to the people group. Do sins have consequences? Yes. They affected the whole tribe that would come after them. And so Reuben's tribe, Reuben's, <laughs> Reuben's tribe was limited. As a matter of fact, if we just look at it for historical purposes, the tribe of Reuben would be of little importance in the nation's history. Not one judge, prophet, military leader, or other important person came out of the tribe of Reuben. Lots of years went by, lots of opportunities. And there's some other kind of ugly things that tribes did, but most of them still had somebody that, that uh, would come out in a positive way. Um, in Deuteronomy 33, and I'm not going to ask us to turn there, but Moses makes a prayer, or at least he speaks a blessing, on the Israelites before he dies. And, well, we can look at that. Romans thir or Deuteronomy 33, verse 6. This is what Moses has to say about the tribe of Reuben. So it's in the middle of this prayer. I'm pulling out a line. I don't want to read the whole thing. Deuteronomy 33, verse 6. That's interesting. Yours reads a little differently than the New American Standard. Read that again, Alan. Let Reuben live and not die, but let his men be few. So I don't. I didn't look up the conjunctions here. Let me let me read you the New American Standard. There's one word that's different, and it kind of puts a little different twist on that second line. May Reuben live and not die, nor his men be few. 
That is interesting. I didn't see that coming to look it up. Um, the, the way that this is interpreted is Reuben's tribe isn't much. And the way that people look at this, and I would look at it the same way, um, preserve Reuben's tribe. They're not doing real well. Don't want them to just fade out and be nothing. And so in, in all of the blessings that he talks about, um, this is an interesting one or prayers that, that Moses makes here. It's an interesting one that he's praying for this diminutive tribe that they would survive. <laughs> and, and he says, let Reuben, I mean, we're not talking about Reuben the man, are we? We are about 400 years after that, probably 400 plus, because Moses is dying, so it's about 440 years after this time. Here's Moses saying, I hope this diminutive tribe, I'm asking that this diminutive tribe not simply fade away. Questions or comments about Reuben? Anybody want to go name their kid Reuben now? Yeah, well, anyway, not all Reubens would have to bear the same, same stigma, but he certainly did. Um, in Genesis 4, uh, go back to 49 now. We're going to look at 5 through 7. And here we get two more of Leah's sons in verses 5 through 7. Uh, Jacob puts them together in his deathbed discussion here or prophecy. So let's look at Genesis 49, 5 through 7. Who will read that for us? Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their words. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, but not be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed man, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it's fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. All right. So these two sons, Simon and Levi, are put together in his discussion. He said they're brothers. Well, now, is that some huge revelation? <coughs> what does he mean by they're brothers? Kin. They're, kin. They're, kin. They're yeah, and I would even say probably cut out of the same mold. These two brothers act like brothers in the sense that they're very much alike. They do similar things. He says their swords are implements of violence. What violence are they most known for? Revenge for Dinah. They really wipe out the whole town of Shechem in terms of the men. Uh, through a deception, they're promising Dinah in marriage to the one who violated her. And out of that, they um, at, tell them all, if you're going to, if, if we're going to join companies, you've got to be uh, circumcised like we are. And so they all think, hey, this is a good idea. It's sold to the men by the leaders of Shechem, the leader of Shechem, the father of this one that did the violation, that, hey, we're going to get a trade with them. They're wealthy. We're going to get a share in their wealth. This is going to be great. So some are looking at funds 
and their growth financially. Others are looking at, his son is looking at, I want this woman for my wife. And out of that deception, while they're recovering from the challenge of being circumcised, they go in and kill them all. And then they involve their brothers in looting the city and carrying off the non-male people and their goods and the whole thing. Do you remember how Jacob reacted to that? Yeah, we stink now. And not only do we stink, we stink bad enough we have to leave. Um, we can't stay here. They're going to come and wipe us out. Other people will be afraid. But God tells him, no go. And as they're going, others are afraid of them. But, yeah. It's kind of strange that when you talk, think about Levi, Yes. Yes, he does. We're going to talk about that just a little bit before we're done here. And so Jacob has some personal reactions to to this. He's still bringing it up. I mean, Simon and Levi. At the time, Jacob's really put out with them. What have you done? And they have that speech. Do you remember how they answered Jacob? Well, what, what were we supposed to do? Let our father, our, our sister be treated like a harlot? And so they've got their righteous indignation that even in Jacob's rebuff, they're not willing to say, yeah, maybe we should have done something else. And now we're years later at Jacob's deathbed. It's almost like, we got to hear this again? I mean, I don't know what they thought, and I'm not trying to to superimpose that but you know this is these guys did something that sticks to them and it's not going away and it has an impact and Jacob essentially says let my soul not enter into their counsel let my glory be not the truth of who I am not be united with their assembly he goes this these boys were bad enough I don't want to be associated with them that's what he says That's not a very pleasant thing to hear from your father, is it? Apparently, they haven't redeemed themselves. And as he's talking about them, he says, because, why do I not want to be associated with them? In their anger, they slew men. Was it only in the city of Shechem? We don't know. Because the next thing we've not heard about before. In their self-will, they lamed oxen. And typically, um, laming an oxen was done by cutting a tendon in the leg or the foot that made them where they couldn't really work. They, oxen were often used as draft animals, but they couldn't get around. They were crippled up. It was a cruel thing to do. And he said, goes on in verse 7, he says, Cursed be their anger, for it's fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. Laming an oxen helps no one. Now, I don't, I don't want to justify what they did with regard to Dinah, but they gained from that. They carried off a bunch of wealth. But there's just really no good reason to lame an oxen and make it so it can't work and has difficulty even just continuing to exist on its own. Can't walk right. 
And so he calls him out as being cruel out of a fierce anger. And so this is what he brings up and says, this is who you boys are. Now, are they still sons of Jacob? Are they still part of the 12 tribes of Israel? Yes, but I will disperse them in Jacob and will scatter them in Israel. Now, there's two tribes here, right? So let's talk about that just a little bit. And by the way, I don't want us to miss the first word in verse 7. Cursed be their anger. This isn't a father saying, may you be blessed anyway. (laughs) He's calling down curses on these two boys for the way that they live. And so let's take a look for a moment of the consequences that he calls out there. Um, I will disperse them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Well, that's really a different outcome for each of the two boys. I first of all want to let you know that in Joshua chapter 13, uh, we can look at verses 8, we're not going to, if we looked at verses 8 through 83, we see Moses dividing up the lands amongst the tribes. And then they go off and they do some of their fighting and everything's not occupied yet. Not everybody has gone where they were expected to. And Joshua, under his leadership in chapter 18, lays out a process for how the tribes that haven't occupied those spaces yet, how they're going to deal with that. So let's look at Joshua 18, 1 through 7. And while, our, while you're turning there, I'm going to tell you that back in Numbers chapter 26, there was a census done by Moses a second time looking at how many, yeah, uh, Joshua 18, 1 through 7, looking at the, the number of fighting men in each of these tribes. And we read about Reuben and his diminishment, but Simeon is the smallest tribe when Moses does the second census. So they're not exactly prospering in terms of as a people group and as fighting soldiers. But let's look at Joshua 18, 1 through 7. That will show us the process that Joshua intends to use to get the rest of the tribes settled. And so if somebody would read that for us, I'd really appreciate it. Joshua 18, 1 through 7. Then the whole congregation of the people of Israel assembled at Shiloh and set up the tent of the meeting there. The land lay subdued before them. <clears throat> there remained among the people of Israel seven tribes whose inheritance had not yet been apportioned. So Joshua said to the people of Israel, How long will you put off going in to take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you? Provide three men from each tribe, and I will send them out that way, that they may set out and go up and down the land. They shall write a description of it with, their, with a view to their inheritance, uh, to their inheritances, and then come to you. They shall divide it into seven portions. Judah shall come to its territory on the south, and the house of Joseph shall continue in, uh, in their territory on the north, and you shall describe the land in seven divisions, and bring the description here to me. And I will cast lots for you here before the Lord our God, and the Levites have no portion among you, for the priesthood of the Lord is their heritage. And Gad and Reuben and half the tribe of Manasseh have received the, their inheritance beyond the Jordan eastward, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave them. Okay. So that's the process. They're going to go out and they're going to survey the land, 
determine where each of them is going, and um, it did. And, and so, was that chapter eighteen? Yes. Yeah. Yep. And so, if we turn over to chapter nineteen now, let's read verses one through nine and see how that worked out for um, Simeon and Levi, or at least Simeon in this case. The second lot came out for Simeon, for the tribe of the people of Simeon, according to their clans, and their inheritance was in the midst of the inheritance of the people of Judah. And they had for their inheritance Beersheba, Sheba, Molada, Hazar, Shaul, Melah, Ezem, El-Tolad, Bethel, Ziklag, Beth Markaboth, Hazareth, Shuesh, Beth Leboth, and Sharuthen, 13 cities with their villages. Ain, Ramon, Ether, and Ashen, four cities with their villages. Together with all the villages around the cities, as far as there, Ramah of the Negev, this was the inheritance of the tribe according, of the people of Simeon according to their clans. The inheritance of the people of Simeon formed a part of the territory of the people of Judah, because the portion of the people of Judah was too large for them. The people of Simeon had obtained an inheritance in the midst of their inheritance. Okay, we're going to talk more about Judah in a little bit. But, so, let's talk about what happened to these two groups. And if you look at the one that's half a sheet, the 12 tribes of Israel, either, either one of them would show you this, but... On that one, you can see that Judah has the southwest portion of the inheritance, and it's really a, a good inheritance. But as this all works out before it's done, Simeon just becomes kind of a contained state within Judah. So this is a diminished position for Simeon and the people. And so that's how it works out. It, it fits in when Jacob says, I will disperse them in Jacob. So here they are. Simeon doesn't really have this clear bordered area that's theirs, and they don't have to worry, you know, that, that, that they have real dominion over. I mean, they do, but only in the sense that it's in the middle of Judah's bordered area. And that limits it. Now, where, where does Levi wind up? scattered because why I mean not maybe because why but the mechanism to get there from here they're the tribe of priests so they're not allotted a land they are to be cared for by the other tribes and they will receive their portions in terms of making a living and so on now they're not entirely left out because and I didn't I made these two if we had continued down with this one, there, there was on this web page, uh, eventually, um, a, a description, a, a representation of where the Levites winded up because they were in charge of the sanctuary cities. And so they had the sanctuary cities were their primary headquarter areas, and they were scattered all over the 12 tribes. And so they had cities pockmarked throughout the promised land and by God's grace and because of their loyalty 
in the time of the Exodus, now, <laughs> or maybe prior to that a little bit, I, I hesitated. I copied those words right out of somebody else. Certainly it was God's grace. I'm not real sure about their loyalty. You see Levi's involved in numerous sins. Uh, Levi's own sons, two of them, were very nonchalant and offensive in how they handled some of their responsibilities in the temple with regard to the fire and the incense, and God just snuffed them out in a hurry. I don't know that Levi wins any great big marks, but who were the two most famous Levites? This is easier than you think. Aaron and? Huh? Aaron was a brother of? Moses. So the one that led them out of Egypt was a Levite. Moses. And his brother Aaron, well, I mean, you stop and think about it. His brother Aaron was the first high priest and God said the high priestly function was going to come through the tribe of Aaron. If you, You're going to be a direct descendant of Aaron if you wanted to work in the temple or in the tabernacle in that high priestly role. And so God did establish that priestly function within the tribe of Levi, but they certainly are well scattered. Yeah? Yes. 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 And and and, and later later we yep. get to uh time across the Jordan, it was Phineas, son of Eleazar, a Levite, who slew the Simeonite man who brought the Midianite woman into the tent and stayed the plague of God. So we see instances where the Levites were faithful. Yes. Where I, other tribes were not. And I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't move away from that at all. Um, and, and I'm not, I don't mean this to say, no, you're wrong. One of the things, though, that really always bothered me was Aaron, Aaron's role in the. Maybe I want to even say that differently. The golden calf should have never come to be. And they stood after the golden calf came to be. But what in the world were they doing while it was being made? And including Aaron leading in the milling of that golden calf. It just, it's just like, what a high priest you picked, God. But, but isn't that so true of God picking any of us? I mean, I'm really, when we get done with this, there's a lot of things to say. And we're not going to get done today. But one of the things to say is, these are the guys God chose to build a nation out of. And he would turn to Aaron, who would help the people build the golden calf to be the high priest. Well, God doesn't have, I don't want to say God's a victim, and, but God in his own choosing picks the least, not the greatest. That way he gets the greatest glory, number one. But number two, if he was going to pick a perfect person, we'd still be waiting for the selection, Right? I mean, this is God's works with the people he created, and we have, as a family of people, rebelled and turned against him. And we'll, we'll, we'll get to some of that more 
at the end of the chapter, not today. Um, let's look at Romans. Romans. I don't know why I see read and read Romans every time. Let's look at uh, Genesis 49, verses 8 through 12. I may have bitten off more than I can chew here, but we'll see how far we can get with it. Genesis 49, 8 through 12. Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the, from the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouches a lion. And as a lioness, who dares ruse him? And as a lioness, who dares ruse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine, and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth whiter than milk. Okay, so now we get to hear about Judah. And we've already talked about Judah's going to rise in preeminence. He says, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. Remember when we read over in 1 Chronicles 5, when it talked about um, the loss of Reuben's position, it said, Judah will prevail over you, over your brothers. And Joseph gets a birthright. That's that passage we read. So that is exactly what we're talking about here. That Judah is going to rise up. And so what will be Judah's relationship among the tribes? He's going to be the leader. In what ways? Well, let's look ahead and we'll see more ways as we read the rest of these verses. So let's look at verse 9. Judah is a lion's cub or a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you've gone up. What, what are we talking about here? From the lion's successful hunting, you've been a part of the capture, you've taken the spoils, and you've fed on what you killed. That's the, the picture of the lion here. Likewise, Judah will be successful and out of his success, he will come up from that excess and he will couch uh, down. He lies down as a lion and as a lion, who dares rouse him up? Who dares, but, you know, our favorite saying around here is, you know, don't poke, don't poke the bear. Well, theirs must have been the lion. Essentially what they're saying here is, here's Judah and he lays around. I don't want to say lays around, but he's there. He's ready to attack if need be. And he is uh, laying down like a lion. And who's going to poke him? In other words, Judah is feared. He's respected for his power. And that will be the tribe, of course, from among the rest of the people, both his brothers, but probably certainly others as well. And so he's going to be revered amongst his brothers. The relationship will contain a recognition and respect for Judah's power among them. 
It goes on in verse 10 to say, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until, and we'll talk about the until in a minute. So what are they talking about here? What's the scepter? In a physical sense, the scepter was usually something that they held that was the sign of their kingly authority. We're going to look at um, Esther after this. And in Esther, that was what she needed when she went in front of the king, who she could be killed just for showing up without being asked. But if he extended the scepter to her, the sign of his authority, it showed that you're welcome in my sight and so you get to live. And so this is the sign of kingly authority, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. So Judah is going to continue in the role of ruling and leadership until, and the New American Standard says, Shiloh comes. Very clearly, this is a reference to the coming Messiah, to Christ. Now when Christ comes, that leadership will still stay within Judah's clan, but it becomes transcendent beyond Judah himself. Does that make sense? It's bigger than the tribe of Judah once it transfers to Christ himself. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now that's an interesting one there that as I look at it, which him are we talking about? Judah? Or Christ, and like so many prophecies, both. The people will obey Judah, because out of Judah are going to come kings. Um, and as we think about kings, um, the first king in Israel was not of the tribe of Judah. Saul was a Benjaminite, as was the Saul of the New Testament, for whatever that's worth. But from them, God leads Saul and is with David. And from David's day forward, it would be a king would come out of the tribe of Judah even until we reach Christ himself. Look at Revelation. Where did I write that down? It's chapter 5. Well, I decided to put that in a different place in my notes and apparently put it in no place in my notes. 5-5? Five. Five, five? Yeah, I think we were going to read the first five verses because it, it really paints a picture. Yeah, first five verses. Revelations 5, 1 through 5. Then I saw... In the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look <laughs> into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David has conquered 
so that he can open the scrolls and its seven seals. Jesus, and you knew this was coming, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And so Jesus then is the real full fulfillment of what Jacob is saying here about Judah. Questions, comments so far? we got a question. If we could uh, interpret the second half of verse 10. So until tribute comes to, uh, comes to him or until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. So um, the word peoples there, would, would that word be used for nation, like nations? Uh, and if that's the case, then that particular, that particular uh, uh, statement would be regarded to uh, the Shiloh. Yeah, and I, I think that's correct. I, I mean, I think it's both, but certainly it would be to the Shiloh as well. And and we look at nations, the, the challenge with the words that we see used in the book of Genesis, I mean, for example, when in chapter 48, when Jacob is talking about the two sons of Joseph, and Joseph is disappointed that Manasseh is not raised up, Jacob says, well, he will be a great nation as well. And so you run into some challenges trying to figure out when it says nation, does it mean descendants of a person? Or does it mean nation's big picture? And, and I'm not trying to say that, I'm not disagreeing with you at all, but, but it's just the language doesn't make it as easy to say that as you'd wish it would. Uh, th there is an exception, though, and the exception is when the promise comes to Abraham and he says, through you, the nations of the earth will be blessed. There's a word that I skipped in there that makes it clear, and, to, and through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so that makes a big difference when that is put in there. Uh, now, when I just read it and I look at it in the context and the way it's used in the, in the words, I think it's all the nations. I do. I'm just saying it just sometimes wish it was a little easier. Any other comments? Thank you for that. Good comment. So let's look at this last section here. Verses 12, uh, 11 and 12. Uh, he ties his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garments as wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are dull from new wine and his teeth are white from milk. Um, now I know the New American Standard put a little different nuance on that than what was read a little bit ago, but what picture are we getting here? What is he saying about Judah? What does it mean, ties his foal to the vine? So, any of you in here been around horses? So, in the fall of the year, would you tie your horse to an apple tree? Huh? You would? What's that? Yeah, well, yeah, but if you tie your horse to apple tree, who's going to pick your apples for you, at least the low ones? The horse, right? And the horse isn't going to care if he eats a whole apple. That bite was good. There's another one here, you know. And that's kind of the picture we're getting, but it's a different culture because most of their fruit is in the region of grapes. So he 
ties his foal to the vine. Do you want your critter eating your grapes and the vine that it came on? I don't know about grapevines if they eat them or not. I'm ignorant. But the point is, and he puts his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He didn't just go out and randomly tie him to some vine. He tied him up to one of the choicest vines. Goes on to say he washes his garments with wine and his robes with the blood of grapes. The whole idea here is he's going to have such abundance. It's like saying the streets are paved with gold. We use gold like gravel. What does that mean? There's so much gold here, it's just everywhere. So what? Who cares how you use it? The grapes, the, the land is producing for them so much. Everything he does prospers. And so, yeah, time to the vine. I don't care. Let him have the grapes. I don't care. I got a lot more over here. I've got enough that even the animals can feast on the grapes. To the point that, oh, my laundry needs done. Well, if you don't want to go down to the creek and get the water, just use the wine. I mean, that, that's a little bit what a part of this is trying to say is, he just, he's being prosperous. So prosperous that his eyes show, in uh, verse 12, his eyes are dull from wine and his teeth white from milk. Drinks so much milk because he's got so much milk that he just he just consuming it all the time. And physically, in himself, he's prospering as well. And so this is the picture painted of Judah. Um, one of the places that I went to, and I really want to do it. Um, look at Numbers chapter 24. Now, this is a time under Moses yet. And Judah is clearly a part of that. And they're having battles with the local people as they wander around in their 40-year period. They still had some battles with various people groups. One of those people groups was the Moabites. Which, by the way, if you, do you remember where Moab comes from? Son of Lot, that's right. And so they're having a real conflict, and Balak uh, is the leader of the Moabites. And he wants a prophet to come up and say, everything's going to go great when you go into battle with the Israelites. And so he turns to Balaam, who was known as a prophet in some fashion, to come up and make this prophecy. And so Balaam, typically taking money, is headed up, and to do that, this is where you get Balaam's donkey. His donkey gets in his face through part of this to say, what do you think you're doing? But anyhow, this is what happens when he gets up to Balak and gets ready to give the prophecy. By now, Balaam knows he needs to be honest about whatever God reveals to him, if it's even the God of, of the New Te Old Testament that does the revealing, and in this case it is. Let's read Numbers 24, verses 1 through 3. And then skip down and read verses 8 and 9. Somebody have that for us? When Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he did not go as other times to look for omens, but set his face toward the wilderness. And Balaam lifted up his eyes and saw Israel camping by tribe by tribe, and the Spirit of God came upon him, and he took up his discourse and said, 
Egypt, giving the verse 8. God brings him out of Egypt and is for him like the horns of the wild ox. He shall eat up the nations, his adversaries, and shall break their bones in pieces and pierce them through with his arrows. He crouched, he lay down like a lion, and like a lioness who, who will rouse him up. Blessed are those who bless you, and cursed are those who curse you. It's interesting that this same language that Jacob is using to talk about Judah is used by Balaam the prophet to tell Balak exactly what he doesn't want to hear. You're poking a lion, and as you poke the lion, you can expect the results that a person would get when they go poke a lion. And so it's, I just think that's just real interesting that that is the um, condition there. Now in Noah's second census, I already talked about that once, uh, Judah is the largest tribe. And we won't turn to and read it. It's just going to say what I'm going to tell you, that when they were coming up out of Sinai, they were in hostile territory. And in Numbers chapter 10, this is described. And as they're assembling and getting ready to go, all the tribes are putting being put together. And who do you suppose is the lead tribe? Judah. Judah. And out of which tribe did we get the military leaders that led the whole thing? Judah. And so Judah does emerge as the leadership tribe. And... Um, then we're not going to read Joshua 15, 1 through 12. I didn't plan on it if we had lots of time. But you remember what we looked at with regard to Judah? They received a really choice territory there in southern Israel. And it was fairly large if you look at, at either one of these maps. But you can see that Judah, Manasseh actually gets the biggest chunk of ground. But Judah received quite an inheritance. And... Um, then in Revelation chapter 5, we already looked at that, that Jesus is tied with the tribe of Judah as the lion of the tribe of Judah. Okay, I rushed just a little bit at the end. Sorry about that. Any questions or comments? Yeah. Different things that way. And I wonder how many other rabbit trails there are with Levites and their struggle with anger as they go through. Yeah. I, I don't know. In, in, in some ways, Moses gets, here is one that's interesting. Moses gets mad at the people for bothering him for water there at the tail end. Why does Moses not go in the promised land? Because then he gets, he strikes the rock out of what? Mm -hmm. Anger. He's a Levite through and through. And because of that, God said, no, you acted like it was you doing it. You were mad. You were bothered with it. I'm the one providing. Um, so you'll see it, but you won't enter the promised land. Pretty amazing. So let's, let me close with a word of prayer. Father, you are gracious to us. We see your graciousness beginning to come out of establishing a nation out of these 12 tribes. And, uh, Lord, you, you built it into a great nation, and you even have seen that it exists again yet today. Uh, Lord, lead us recognizing that it is out of grace we are led, not because of anything we are, anything we have done that has earned it. Lord, we know that any good thing we have done is because your grace has led us to do it. Thank you for your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
All right, next time we'll pick it up after Judah. And it will be Zebulun.